start today with a common phrase, and I want to see if you can help me finish the phrase, all right? So I'm going to start it, and you shout out the last word of the phrase, all right? Here it is. A picture is worth a thousand words. Man, y'all do know that. I was really worried about that going down. Like, maybe have they heard of it? Have they not? Uh, yeah, that phrase, I want us to start with that phrase this morning, and I want us to think about what that phrase means. I've got a few snapshots for, for us to kind of exercise this principle. The first one here, it's kind of hard to see, but this is a tri-tip steak sandwich. And if you've ever been out in California, this is what you get, and this is like the best meal ever. In fact, in about a week, I get to have this meal again, and I can look at this picture and start to taste that tri-tip steak sandwich, right? I mean, we all have that food that we're just like, man, that food is really good. And if you see a picture of it, you're like, man, I really want that. It's this idea of a picture is worth a thousand words. Let's go to the next picture. For most of us in the room that are parents, we have a picture like this. This was right after uh, our fourth son, Abraham, was born. And it's the picture that just shows just this really cool moment. And every, picture, every parent in the room has a picture like this. Whether you forced your kids within an inch of their life to take a picture like this or whether it was natural, we all have a picture like this. And the truth of it is it kind of evokes this parent, this parent sentimentality, doesn't it? Like, oh, man, that's so cool. A picture is worth a thousand words. Look at the next picture. This is me walking on the Sea of Galilee. It's not photoshopped. It just happened. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I was in Israel, and we're out at the Sea of Galilee, and I'm thinking, this is awesome. And this random bucket was sitting on the side of the, of the sea there. So I go, and we're with a bunch of other pastors. I go stick the bucket in the middle of the water and stand on the bucket to take this epic photo picture and it was the craziest thing because I felt a little weird doing it. And then the next thing I know, all these pastors are lining up like it's a Vegas photo shoot. We're all taking pictures on the bucket of this. A picture is worth a thousand words. And then the last picture here is an engagement picture of me and Crystal. And maybe the words that you have are more of a question of, is Crystal blind? And the answer is, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how I got Crystal, but... Uh, this picture for me is a little bittersweet because it's an engagement picture, but while we were taking this picture, someone was breaking into our car and stealing Crystal's wallet and about $300 out of our, uh, out of our little uh, honeymoon kitty there. And uh, what I, when I look at this picture, I think to myself, a snapshot, a one picture can evoke all kinds of memories, thoughts, and words that we think of. Now, here's the point. Why am I even bringing this stuff up? I'm bringing it up because of this. We're in a series called Major Messages from the Minor Prophets. And last few weeks, we've looked at Haggai and Habakkuk. Haggai is two chapters long. Habakkuk is three chapters long. And today, we're looking at the book of Hosea. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea. And here's what's true about Hosea. Hosea is 14 chapters long. 
And here's what we know that I need you to think about as we think about our time today in the book of Hosea. We have to look at a snapshot. We can't look at all 14 chapters today. We're going to look at a snapshot, and I'm hoping and praying that the Holy Spirit of God will take the snapshot today and impart something to us. This idea that a picture is worth a thousand words. Hosea is a beautiful but unsettling story. In fact, the story is told in multiple contexts. There's this greater context for the book of Hosea. And you can kind of see this there on your outline that the prophet Hosea, or excuse me, um, let me say this first. I skipped something here. God, this is our introduction for the whole series. God uses the minor prophets to convey major messages to his people, not just back then, but even now. And what I mean by that is that there is this greater context that we see here in the book of Hosea. The first thing we see is the private story of a prophet, namely Hosea. You want to talk about an intimate look into a man's life, like you want to talk about living in a glass house, we are going to know the details of Hosea's life. The very private details are found right here in the book of Hosea. So it's about the private story of a prophet. It's also about the historical story of a nation, namely Israel. In fact, we talked about this with all the minor prophets. As we saw last week, the prophets were giving account as to what was coming for the people of Israel. They had been living in sin and God was going to judge them. And so we, God uses this book to tell us a historical story of what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. But we also have these other two contexts. The personal story of a sinner. Namely us. And this is the whole point of this series is that we can hear the word of God and it not just be something for Hosea, not just be something for the nation of Israel, but that we can hear the stories of God. We can hear his word and recognize that God wants to speak to us. Us that were once dead in Christ, once sinners. Some of us may be in the room today that still are dead in Christ. That there's this personal story in the book of Hosea. And lastly, and probably the greatest context, and not probably is the greatest context, the gospel story of a Savior, namely Jesus. That everything in the Bible points to Jesus. You know, for a lot of us, we have the gospel accounts, right? Like this is my gospel account right here. 103 pages of the Gospels here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we tend to think when we read the Bible that Jesus is just in this one little section of the Bible. But that's not what we see when we look at God's Word. He's not just in 103 pages of my Bible. He's in all 992 pages of God's Word. That from Genesis 3.15, where it talks about crushing the head of the serpent... All the way in the Old Testament to Malachi 4.6, restoring this picture of perfect fatherhood. Jesus is in all of it. And the more you read the Bible, the more you see it. Like, wow, there's Jesus. Wow, there's a story. There's a gospel story there. And right here in Hosea is probably my absolute favorite gospel story of Jesus. Right here in the book of Hosea. 
The story starts with an unsettling command. An unsettling command. And here's what the command was. God tells Hosea to marry Gomer. Now there's two problems with this. The first problem is her name is Gomer. (laughs) If your name's Gomer in here, I'm very, very sorry. But when I think of Mary Crystal, like God's saying, Mary Crystal, I'm thinking of like fine glass, you know, like this beautiful, like beautiful thing, right? Like it's like, man, that's such a beautiful name. When I think God married Gomer, I think of this guy, right? I mean, tell me when I didn't say Gomer, you didn't think of him. Like, this is who we think of when we think of Gomer. And that's really the first problem, but not really, right? Like, that's not what's serious. The real problem with this is that when God asked Hosea to do this, the real problem is that Gomer was a prostitute. Now, think about this for just a minute. Right here in chapter 1, verse 2, it says this. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Didn't think you were going to hear this verse on Sunday morning, did you? Imagine this. It says here, the first time God speaks to Hosea. So you're a prophet. You're, you're living out God's commands. And you're, you're praying. You're spending time with God. And the first time he audibly speaks to you, he says this. You want me to do what? Now, now here, here's, a, here's a thought. Like The, the scholars are kind of debated on whether this woman was already a prostitute or, or whether later she became a prostitute after they got married. The bottom line is this. This is still a hard passage. God is saying to him, hey, you need to marry this woman. And she either is or is going to become this. Why does God say this to him? I want you to think about this in the terms of the minor prophets. God uses prophets not just to proclaim the message but to personify the message. Prophets very often not just preach the message, a lot of times they were the message. Like God would use them with extreme illustrations to get across the seriousness of where the nation of Israel found themselves. And even for us, when we hear this, we hear the unsettling of of this. Because God wants to speak something very extreme into our hearts this morning. Hosea goes on to marry this woman named Gomer. And they have three children that God himself names. God names these children. And God uses these names to identify a wayward condition. That there is a wayward condition that we find the nation of Israel in... And we may very well find ourselves in this same condition. That within the people, it's, it's, it's there in the people of Israel, but it also may very well be an identity that we find within ourselves. So look here in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. So Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she, con- and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, 
Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Uh, God's talking here about a, a thing that happened a while back. Jehu actually massacred a bunch of people in this valley, Jezreel, and many of them were innocent. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Verse 5, and on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, God is prophesying something that's going to happen in the future. It's gonna, he's talking about uh, in 722, 722 B.C., the Assyrians invade. And this is the immediate context of where this prophecy is about. But here's what I want you to take away from this. What does the name Jezreel mean? God is saying, name your kid Jezreel, name your son Jezreel, which means scattered scattered. Now some of you parents are thinking, that's probably a good name for my kid. <laughs> but this is not that kind of thing. It's not scatter-minded, scatter-brained. No, we're saying scattered, and this is where he's saying, hey, this is, this is not a good name to be associated with. Jezreel meaning scattered. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name La Ruhamah, or your translation might say, call her name No Mercy. So think about this. You have a son named Scattered. You have a daughter named No Mercy. Verse 8, when she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore another son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Loami, or your translation may say, call his name, not my people. Not my people. This is where we find the nation of Israel. In a state of perpetual spiritual adultery against a holy God. And this is how God identifies those people. Scattered. No mercy. Not my people. And we look at the nation of Israel, and those of us that have read our Bibles know this is, this is pretty accurate, right? I mean, we see this time and time again in Israel's history, scattered, no mercy, not my people. We see this in the nation of Israel, and we think, that's a pretty good identity for them. But before we go and start judging Israel, remember there's a greater context. It's not just about the historical nation of Israel. It's also about the personal story of us. That before we call out Israel, we have to realize that we may be guilty of similar atrocities. That when we look for satisfaction in all these other things and people other than God. And I know this is getting serious quick, but I want you to think about this. How many times do we find ourselves running back to the same sin? Slander. Gossip. Lust. Idolatry. Materialism. For some of us, we just can never get enough. We never are satisfied. Ungodly anger. Jealousy. Bitterness. 
dishonesty, pride. You know, for some of us, we, we know, we see it, we feel it. And for some, you've done these things so long, you begin to disregard them as really sin. And maybe you're in this room today, and that's where you find yourself, running back to the same sin. Look at what God says to Hosea about his wife. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 13 says this, And I will punish her, I will punish Gomer for the feast days of the Baals, the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. This is what was so bad about what she was doing. It wasn't just that she was wrapped up in sin. It wasn't that she was just wrapped up in adultery. It was the idea that she would combine her adultery with the worship experience. In fact, if you do a study on this verse, you kind of start to realize that really she became what's called a temple prostitute. That she would combine what she was doing, this gross immorality, with the worship experience. And it wasn't worshiping God, it was worshiping the Baals, but it was done within a worship context. This religious cover-up that we find in her. And if we think about it, religion is the biggest cover-up for spiritual Adultery. Religion is the biggest cover-up for spiritual adultery. For some of us, the reason that we can live in our sin or the reason we can continue to go back to the same sins and continue to allow all of that in our world is because if we can come to church and put on a good show, we'll feel better about what we're doing in secret. It's this word that we hear a lot around the church called hypocrisy. The idea of being a hypocrite. And I know we've talked about this before and you've probably heard a thousand definitions for this word. But I found one this week that I really like. And it's this. Hypocrisy is outwardly perfect but inwardly profane. Outwardly perfect but inwardly profane. That for Some of us in this room, if we were being honest, we could come here to this church and no one would ever know what we're involved in. They'd never know. They'd never know of the secret stuff that's done in our private life. The character that we have. Because we're walking in the door with outward perfection. But inwardly, inwardly God sees the heart. And inwardly God knows that there's some profane, profane thing there in us. That even now there are people in this room that have hidden and concealed their rebellion against God. You have worn this mask of religion, the face of a faithful follower of Christ. And the fact is you're committing adultery against a holy God. That same hand lifted in worship 
is the same hand that is involved in all kinds of immoral business dealings and other things. That the same mouth praising God here is the same mouth that's quickly gossiping, cursing others. The same face before us today is the same face that will bury itself in front of a computer screen or an iPhone and give away their heart's attention and affection that should be reserved for their spouse, their family, and a holy God. And for some of us, man, you are so uncomfortable right now because your biggest fear is that you're going to be found out. That someone's going to find out who the real you is. And this is where Hosea finds his bride. In a place of adultery and a religious cover-up. And maybe you find yourself there. The end of verse 13 here states the offense. And look with me again at that, that, that verse. She went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. This is what our sin does. It causes us to forget about God. So what do we, what, what we think is going to happen next in the story? Right? I mean, the offense is there. We know what's been done. We know what this woman's about. We know every bit of this. What do we think should happen in the story? This is a holy, perfect God that these people have openly rebelled against. What's deserved here? I'll tell you. She deserves to be stoned to death, according to their law. Israel deserves to be wiped off the face of the map, or the map of the face of the planet. And we deserve eternal hell. But look at what it says in verse 14. This is God speaking. Therefore, behold, here comes the response to our sin. Here comes what God's going to do about our sin. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. The big turn in the story. you got to catch this. The big turn in the story is you see an unfaithful people, but an unrelenting and unstoppable God that is not going to let her go quietly and not going to let us go quietly. That there is a beautiful cost that is paid. You would think judgment, damnation, hell. You would think stoned to death. You would think wiped off the planet. Instead, this is how God responds. This beautiful cost that is paid on her behalf. That God gives this intentionally romantic response. It says here, therefore, behold, I, God, will Allure her. It's the same idea of a guy trying to get a girl's attention. It's the same kind of wording. I remember when I was pursuing Crystal. This was before texting and, and uh, Snapchat and all those wonderful things. We had email. Yeah, I know that sounds pretty lame. But man, I would email Crystal. All the time. I would send these great emails to her. And here's what I know and what I found up to be true. Crystal, I didn't win her over because of my looks. Right? Y'all are snickering because you know that ain't true. I mean, you saw the picture. 
I won her over, true, truly, by the way that I would speak to her. By the way that I would communicate to her. I would speak tenderly to her. I would allure her. And this is the kind of language that we have here about God. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. He's getting her, the idea of going into the wilderness, he's getting her away from all the distractions, all the immorality to win her back. And then God uses Hosea to illustrate his love, to illustrate this very kind of love. In chapter 3, verse 1, this is what God says to Hosea. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the same way the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So I bought her, Hosea bought his wife for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know exactly how this happened, but what we can figure is somehow Gomer got caught into slavery. Her lifestyle brought her to a place where she was enslaved, and she's there on the slave block, and Hosea is there to buy her freedom. And if we think about it, that's really what sin does in our life, right? It's this idea where we continue to persist in the sin and immorality of our lives that eventually that same sin that we think we're managing and controlling winds up enslaving us. That for some of us, we're so sick of our sin, but we just, we haven't allowed it. We haven't put it to death. We haven't killed it. And we become enslaved to it. But God has made a way for us to walk out of that slavery and out of that death. And he's giving us this example with Hosea. Verse 3 says, And I said to her, You will dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. Hosea is buying his bride back. And we see this picture of ultimate love, not just here, but we see this greater context because we see this very same picture in the Gospels. That Jesus paid the price for us. He goes into the streets to find us, into the houses of other lovers that we have been with, and he buys us back. And it costs more than silver and barley. He purchases us with his blood. According to the law, Numbers 5.15, you can look this up later, but barley was included in this price because that's what was required for one accused of adultery. That if you were going to buy a slave that was accused of adultery, barley had to be a part of the payment, a part of the price. And what's really interesting about this, and I didn't know this until I started studying it, but some scholars believe that those nine bushels of barley would actually equate to about 15 pieces of silver. So I want you to kind of put this together in your head. We already know there's 15 pieces of silver there. And then we have nine bushels of barley, which also equal 15 pieces of silver. 
So you have 15 pieces of silver, an equivalent of 15 pieces of silver, that equals 30 pieces of silver. The same amount that Judas betrayed Jesus with. This snapshot of a story is pointing us to one person, one event, one thing. The finished work of the cross. You know, it's so easy for us to forget what the cross really means. We know facts about the cross, right? Like for a lot of us, we've grown up knowing it's a wooden cross. We know the Romans were kind of behind it. We know he, you know, got out on the cross. He was there for six hours. He was there from like nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. We know the sky went dark. We know all of these great facts about the cross, but we forget the beauty of the cross. That it's not just an ornament in our building. That the cross isn't just the cross. It's our cross. That Jesus didn't just die on the cross. He died on my cross. And until we realize that it's our cross, the gospel will just be okay news. And we will miss the beauty of what God has done on our behalf. So the major message this morning of Hosea is one word. And it's a church word and you've probably heard it. Redemption. Redemption. The cross is not a scheme hatched by Romans. It is the master plan where Jesus takes on the full weight of our adultery. That God's focused wrath is placed on Jesus. Isaiah 53, 5 through 10. These are just a few things it says about that sacrifice and that cost. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He was cut off from the land of the living. He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. I have such a hard time imagining this verse. Like, I I really struggle with this. A few years ago, my son Zion broke his arm, and it was very traumatic. I know kids break their arms all the time. I understand that. Zion was very young. And I remember going and, and getting to the x-ray place, and they told me, they told Crystal, you wait in the, in the room. Father, you're going to come with us, and we need you to hold him down on this table and position his arm certain ways while we x-ray him. One of the worst things I've ever had to deal with is holding my baby son down and holding his arm in different places and him literally looking at me, screaming. And you can see, you can see, and even at that age, you can see it. He just didn't understand what was happening. And from his perspective, it looked like I was the one that was bringing all the pain. So when I read this first, I I, I can't even get my mind around this. Yet it was the will of the Father to do this. It pleased, the Bible says here, it pleased the Father to do this. Why? Why would this please the Father? 
God brought the pain and the wrath so that we would not be rejected by a holy God, but redeemed by a loving Savior. Remember the names of Hosea's children? Scattered, no mercy, not my people. These were the names given to Israel. They are our names, if we're going to be honest. But redemption changes everything in this story. And it changes everything in our story. Look back in chapter 1, verse 10. It says, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. This was the promise that that God made to Abraham. But it wasn't just for people born Jewish. It was for every person born into the family of God. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall now be said to them, children of the living God. This is what redemption does. Not my people becomes family. Jesus not only redeems us, he then adopts adopts us into his family. That we're no longer a child of wrath, we're no longer a child destined for hell, we're now a son or a daughter of God. Verse 11, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, no longer scattered, and shall appoint for themselves one head. Scattered, it was scattered, but now it becomes gathered. God is declaring future events here. The nation at this time is divided, but there is coming a day where it will all be united under one head. Namely, Jesus. Jesus is coming and he is on the move. Look at the second part of verse 11. And they shall go up from the land. They will Go up from the land. This isn't talking about like movement, like across the land. It's actually referring to the idea of coming up out of the ground. What does that sound like? Resurrection. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now we talked about this a minute ago, but Jezreel means scattered. But what God is doing in the beauty of this verse is he is re-identifying and re-explaining and giving new meaning to this word scattered. The day of Jezreel. It takes on a different meaning. So what is Jezreel? The valley of Jezreel. I have a picture of it, and it's right here. I know this is kind of hard to see, but this picture, I took this right from my office, and where I sit at my desk, this picture is right there on my wall. I see it about 50 times a day. And I love this picture. And here's the reason why I love the picture. The name Jezreel has other names that we know of. It's also called Megiddo, Armageddon. It's the valley of Armageddon, the valley of Jezreel, the valley of Megiddo. And Revelation 16 tells us this is where it happens. This is where Jesus is going to come back and set everything right. And every day I see this picture, I'm reminded of my future. I'm reminded of my inheritance, that I don't have to be adulterous or chase the loves of this world. My inheritance and my future are on the way. And when I see this picture every day, I'm reminded of that. I'm reminded of this 
moment in time here on this earth is so temporary. There is coming this day in this picture where in that valley, he is coming back. And that's my inheritance. That's my future. The next verse says this in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, so say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you remember what he named the daughter, no mercy? To your sisters, you have received mercy. No mercy becomes mercy. And this is what we desperately need, people. This is what you desperately need. This is what every faithful Christ follower in this room needs on a daily basis. That when we wake up, our flesh wants to do things that are not godly. Our flesh wants to cry out and do all of these things. And what we're asking God for each day, we need your mercy today, Lord. For those of you in this room that might be lost, that might be far from God, that might not have ever become a Christ follower, never put your faith in Jesus, today your greatest need is mercy. And this is the picture in Hosea. This is the picture of the book of Hosea that God wants us to give us, that wants to give us, that he wants to make us family, that he wants to gather us together, and he wants to display his loving kindness and his mercy in our lives. And Jesus has done all of this for you. You've been pursued, pursued you. He's pursued you in love, alluring you to himself. He has bought you with a costly price, even though you didn't deserve it. He has made a way through adoption, no longer a child of wrath, but a child of his. And he's reserved an incredible future and eternal inheritance with him. And he has done every bit of this because he loves you. Because he desires to have you. He doesn't want your spiritual mask. He doesn't want that that persona, that outward perfection that you put on when you walked in the door today. He doesn't want that. What he wants is your heart. He wants you. So if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. Maybe today you find yourself quietly and privately living like Hosea's bride. No one would know. No one would know what your life's about. No one would know what you're into. But you know. You know what your week was like. You know the same sin that you keep going right back to. And today, God wants to set you free. He is standing at the slave block wanting to buy you back. And maybe today for the first time, God is saying to you, come on, come home. Forsake this love of the world Forsake these things that are never going to satisfy you. And come and let me redeem you and let me adopt you. If that's you today, I'm going to just say, you have the greatest need in this room. And before you leave today, you need to make that decision to come and follow him.
There's pastors that are here near the front. Even at the end of our gathering, you're more than welcome to come and find us. We'd love to take God's word and show you how you can follow him today. Maybe you're in the room and you're, you're a follower of Jesus, but man, you are allowing the enemy and you are allowing your own flesh to tempt you with the loves of this world and you find yourself in really a place of adultery with God. And today, just like we read the story of Hosea, God wants to free you from that, to redeem you from those pet sins that we find ourselves falling into. So wherever God has you today, I pray that you would be obedient in this moment of worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Jesus, for this story in Hosea. It's a beautiful and unsettling story. And God, we have just a snapshot today of this this love and this, this mercy that you've given us, this snapshot of redemption and the cross. And Father, I pray, Lord, that even, even if we're walking with you today, Lord, that we would just be reminded of your love for us and that we would walk out of this place encouraged. But if there's someone here today, Lord, that doesn't know you, there's someone here today that is just literally always going back to their same sin and their same spiritual adultery, and they're just putting on a mask here on Sunday mornings. Jesus, I pl- pray today, Lord, that you would redeem them from that, that you would set them free, and they would allow that to happen in their lives. Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do in this moment. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand and let's worship together?